Good morning. Today is the 7th of July, and I am joined for this discussion by Sheldon MacDonald, Nathan Sweeney, Jen Corston, Mayak Markinday, and Asim Kadri. With all the talk of a new normal post-lockdowns and forecasts of a V-shaped recovery, markets have rallied hard over the second quarter. Financial markets are awash with liquidity, and there are promises of further support from central banks. Hope is very much in the ascendancy, but finding firm proof of a sustainable recovery is still tricky. Any disappointments or upsets could cause fear to reassert itself, and volatility could then spike higher. Today, we will examine some of the volatility triggers that the summer could bring. Sheldon, could you set the ball rolling by giving a little colour to this age-old contest between hope, what's sometimes called greed, and fear? Yes, we've had an object lesson in greed and fear this year, haven't we, with the scale of the moves that we've seen in markets. We're all very familiar, I guess, by now with what happened at one stage for the MSCI world to have lost a full third of its value and now to have recovered so that it's almost flat on the year to date in local currency terms really just shows us the speed that the change in mood of investors and how things can move very quickly as sentiment changes so fast. What that recovery is hiding, though, that uh, MSCI world number being just down 3% on the year to date, it's hiding some very different situations. So the US is very positive, up 5% for the year to date, but the UK market is still lagging down 15% on the year to date. So we've got this very patchy recovery that we've been seeing in markets as investors have followed the momentum trade around the world. Now, what that's leading to is a very higher risk of concentration. What we've got now, for instance, given these market moves that we've seen, is the US now representing about two-thirds of the global equity index. Five stocks in the global equity index, Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, and Microsoft, now together represent a higher proportion of that index than any other individual country. As I say, that's concentration risk. And that when you get concentration like that, you've got less diversification. When you get these crowded trades, you do get the scope for potential disappointment. Regardless of the V-shaped recovery that we've seen, we are still in the biggest recession in living memory almost, and we're largely feeling our way in the dark as investors. We've had very little forward guidance from companies, and so there's a very wide dispersion in the forecasts from analysts. The Q2 earnings season might throw up some nasty surprises. We'll start to see these company earnings coming out in a couple of weeks' time. Will we see these surprises, as I say, as sectors and industries are being redefined? So we've definitely got conditions in the market for a summer of volatility potential, and the V-shaped recovery that we've seen so far could turn into a W-shaped recovery. Very interesting indeed. Now, Nathan, the US equity markets, as Sheldon said there, have led the charge over the last quarter. What is driving this wave of confidence, do you think, in a swift recovery? Very true, Lorna. So, you know, initially, if we think about what was driving the market, it was definitely stimulus from the Fed or the US Central Bank. We saw that they slashed interest rates quite early on and implemented quantitative easing on an unprecedented scale. So very much above and far beyond any other region. And this has translated into a much quicker turnaround in economic data. I suppose the big surprise was the unemployment data which came out in May, where this unemployment data actually fell instead of rising. And this gave the markets the confidence that the economic recovery could be quick or V-shaped in the US. But in the last few weeks, the US has seen a resurgence in COVID cases. 
leading to suggestions from one Fed member that the recovery could in fact be levelling out. Yeah, so I did read that and that's that's very correct, Lorna. So if you think about COVID cases and hospitalisation rates, they've definitely been picking up or accelerating in the US recently, particularly in the south of the country. And this is leading to some reversal of lockdown easing measures and should, in theory, lower the economic recovery or slow it up to some extent. So we should expect to see some of the data coming out over July. Some of that data should be, you know, coming off some of the highs that we've seen recently because economic activity is being dragged on because the lockdown measures are obviously being put back in place. So what does that mean for investors? So, you know, that could lead to more volatility within the stock market. But if you think if the economic data continues to worsen, then that should lead the central bank to implement more stimulus, which is actually good for the market. So it could actually be positive after a short term bout of volatility. So the central banks responding to COVID-19 pick up there. Asim, if we return to what is arguably the original source of the pandemic, that is China, have we seen similar spikes in infection rates there? Yeah, so in China, we haven't seen a sustained spike in infection rates or a second wave in the same way as a number of states in the US. So on the whole, China looked to have successfully contained the spread of the virus. So initially, they flattened the infection curve fairly early. And since then, the curve has remained flat with the growth rate in cases not picking up. So any fears of a second wave have thus far been mitigated effectively, and that is helping domestic confidence on the pace of the economic recovery. And what confidence do you have in the pace of recovery in China? China was obviously the first to encounter and then recover from the effects of COVID. And China's experience has certainly shown a path for recovery for the rest of the world. As we've touched upon previously, manufacturing activity was the first to recover after the initial hit. But at the moment, there are definite signs that the economic recovery is gathering pace and importantly is broadening to now include services, i.e. the demand side of the economy. And that's crucial, as I would expect the normalization of domestic consumption demand and the services sector to be the key driver of the Chinese economic recovery going forward. So recent figures on services, i.e. the demand side of the economy, were the highest they've been in 10 years. And businesses that were surveyed as part of these uh, kind of readings noted that they were highly confident about the economic outlook. Indeed. Now, if we turn to the geopolitical front, there are significant tail risks for the markets here, which could drive volatility higher. Jen, could you kick us off with the near term prospects for these what they're calling intensified Brexit trade negotiations? Well, unfortunately, the intensity dropped off at the end of last week. So the new accelerated talks, which have now come about because it is too late to extend the transition period, ended a day earlier than planned due to lack of progress on the key differences. And remind us, what are the key areas of dispute here? Well, there are three main ones. So the UK is resisting the EU demands around level playing field provisions. These are common rules to prevent one country undercutting another to to gain a competitive advantage. And these rules include taxation, workers' rights, state aid and environmental protection. Number two is EU fishing rights in UK waters. Now, this is proving to be really emotive. It was one of the things that was important to take back control of for the Brexiteers, but equally important for the likes of France, Germany and the Netherlands. And then the third one is dispute settlement mechanisms. This is whether the ECJ is used for certain rulings, such as future trade disputes. And what's your view? Will the deal be done in time? I think it will be close. 
I'm expecting headlines around these stalemates to continue. Markets will undoubtedly climb a wall of worry with sterling taking the brunt. But my base case is that there will be a bare bones deal done at the very last minute, maybe with some concessions from Johnson, similar to the U-turn he did in the Irish border issue last year. And Asim, again, to continue on the theme of trade as a possible source of volatility, despite President Trump's assurance that the phase one deal is fully intact, there are clearly rising tensions between the US and China on trade. So over the last couple of months, we've seen tensions between the US and China resurface. And that's obviously a concern for investors when you consider how markets fared during the latter part of 2018, when this geopolitical conflict between the US and China came to the fore. What's really concerning about the current tension is that as of 2018, the conflict has now broadened to include a number of other areas, such as technology, politics, and also capital markets, as opposed to just trade. In my view, the current friction definitely has a short-term political dimension to it, and the U.S. election has a large bearing on that. U.S. public opinion of China is currently at an all-time low, and therefore you know, China is an easy target for the U.S., so Trump continuing to criticize China and threaten them makes sense. You know, friction, therefore, this year was likely anyway, but COVID has in a way amplified that. Back to you then, Nathan. We shouldn't forget the US election, which is approaching fairly rapidly. Is this a possible volatility trigger in itself? Yeah, so the US election normally brings a bit of volatility in markets. So if we look at polling data at the moment, we have Biden ahead in the polls. We also have bookmakers have Biden ahead. And what that means for markets, it means that we're likely to see an increase in corporation tax. So Biden wants to increase tax for corporates or companies, and that's likely to reduce their corporate earnings going forward. So that's not really good for equities. But what we do have to remember is that the Democrats, will they take full control of the Senate? So will they be able to pass laws? So we'll have to watch that closely. It looks very tight at the moment. So this is something that we'll be keeping quite a close eye on. However, the election is not until November. So it's still a long way away. And a number of people who are voting in that election, they don't make their minds up until literally a week or two before the election. So there's a long way to go and anything can happen as we saw in 2016, indeed, and it's those sort of headlines that can cause volatility themselves. If we turn to the macroeconomic front, inflation is the watchdog that hasn't barked for a very long time. Mayank, are bond markets now suggesting that a return to inflation is in fact on the cards? Not really. If you were to look at inflation expectations, for example, they're still at 1%, you know, which is the expectations that we've seen over the last five years, where on average it's been around sort of two, two and a half percent. So whilst expectations have increased from the low of March, where it fell below one percent in the US, um, you know, they're still below the five-year historical average. Now it's slightly surprising on one front because we've seen such a huge amount of liquidity pumped into the system, both by central banks and the government. And what you typically expect is that all this liquidity will get used up by consumers and businesses to go out and spend and increase inflation. At the same time, however, inflation expectations are also driven by the rate of economic growth. And if we see a phase two, for example, returning for the coronavirus and unemployment levels being high, you know, we can see inflation being subdued the huge amount of QE that's been done. Overall, I would say that the expectations 
given that they're coming off such a low base at 1.6%, bias is still for inflation to rise in the short term, let's say over the next three to six, but over a medium term horizon, it really depends on the future evolution of COVID cases and what that does to future unemployment rates. So it's really wait and see. But in the short term, inflation expectations, inflation, I expect to rise. Okay, I understand. But what's the gold price, for example, telling us? That seems to be possibly giving a slightly different story there. Gold does two things. Uh, gold is typically seen as an asset, which is a risk off hedge. So you know, diversification against equities and other riskier assets. And the reason it's done so well on a year-to-date basis, started at $1,500 and, you know, almost hitting $1,800, is mainly because of the risk-off element rather than the inflation element, I would say. Going forward, however, and if you think about the long-term history of gold, you know, it also is used as a hedge against inflation. And if inflation expectations were to increase going forward, I could expect gold to be well on the basis of that. But so far, it's been because of its risk off nature and the diversification benefits it provides in a multi-asset portfolio. Thank you for that. Sheldon, if we were to see a significant pickup in inflation over the medium term, what impact do you think that would have on equity markets? As with all things, I think, Lorna, there's probably a couple of different potential outcomes, and a lot of that will depend on what would be in driving the inflation that we've seen. So there is an argument that says, you know, there's a lot of pent-up demand from consumers that have been sitting at home, sitting on cash uh, for some time. And as we ease lockdown, there might be a, a return, a bit of a splurge in spending. That would be a positive driver and positive for companies. A small amount of uh, restrained inflation is a good thing for companies because it means they get pricing power. They can increase the margins on their products. They're earning greater profits. They can pay more staff. That in turn leads to more consumption. And you get this virtuous cycle that helps the global economy. Now, that would be a positive thing. And that clearly would be positive for markets. On the other hand, if the inflation starts to rise to the extent that interest rates also need to rise to keep a lid on that inflation, then you get a reverse effect. If you think about what are you buying when you buy a share, you're buying a, a share of the future cash flows from that company. The present value of those future cash flows actually goes down as interest rates rise. So you get this counterbalancing effect of rising interest rates impacting the, the valuations of companies. I think the other aspect of the way we might get inflation from is what Mayank was speaking about, this monetary inflation, in fact, from all the liquidity that gets pumped into the system. That's probably less positive because there you get the potential for the rising inflation and rising interest rates, but without the positive benefits of companies enjoying that higher pricing power. And you get the specter of stagflation there. So again, we've got two sort of different potential outcomes. And again, this feeds into the potential for volatility going forward. Yes, indeed. I was going to ask you that to now sum up our discussion today, if you could, Sheldon. Yes. As mentioned at the start, we've seen this V-shaped market recovery, but the economic recovery is still in doubt. We've got question marks around the second wave of the virus. We don't know what's going to happen when we reach the end of government support for individuals. And on this basis, the market outlook is also uncertain. We've got companies facing uncertain futures, geopolitical risks, as we've heard, they still remain. 
And the market is reflecting this. The VIX index of expected future volatility remains above 30. Remember, that's certainly well down from the peak that it reached above 80, but it's certainly a lot higher than where we were uh, pre-crisis, where it was trending between 10 and 15. So I think we do need to accept that volatility is likely to remain given all these uncertainties that we're facing with. I think investors need to maintain diversification in their portfolios to try and combat that volatility. And when faced with volatility, stick to your long-term strategic goals. It sounds like we're going to have an interesting summer. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.